Kimberly Iron was only 21 years old when she left her home on the Crow Indian Reservation in Montana in the early fall of 2020. The last contact she had with her father came in October 2020 in a phone call. She has not been seen or heard from since. This is the story of Kimberly Iron. Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. So Maggie, I think you would be really proud of me and Osh for how we did on the last episode. You did a good job. I was like, look at us, staying on track. It's probably because it was so early. (laughs) Probably. It was super early. (laughs) I was already on the beach by the time you guys recorded, so. Yeah, we weren't jealous at all or envious we're mad. <laughs> so I bumped into Osh today at Speedy's during dinner time. No, at a pizza what? place. At a pizza place until we get a sponsorship. Oh, that's right. We're waiting on Speedy's to sponsor us because that's some good pizza. <laughs> so I bumped into Osh at a undisclosed pizza restaurant today <laughs> in Western North Carolina. We were just like, we need Maggie here. We could have recorded on location. Well, I wasn't in Silva. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> we could have had pizza and podcast. <gasps> pizza and podcast. I'm calling it TM. <laughs> so first, before we get into today's story, um, Osh had a little uh, adventure the other day that she wanted to share with us. Oh, yeah. So last weekend, I went to Asheville, went to the mall, came out, you know, left. And then I, I realized my iPad was stolen. Wait, was your car unlocked? No. Yes. Osh, are you <laughs> kidding me? What if someone was sitting in your back seat? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened, why we didn't lock it. We just didn't lock it. Osh has learned nothing in the past year. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, call the police, get a police report, all that stuff. And... I have, like, find my iPad on my phone, so I was able to, like, track it down. So I would just keep pinging it, like, every 30 minutes, just, you know, like, make the alarm go off. And I would, I seen it moving around in Asheville. And so it was, like, at the mall, and then it went to the, the, and we, like, looked around in the parking lot, like, I know it's around here somewhere. And then, like, the next day it went to, like, this motel over by Outback, um, like where the subway, <laughs> like it kind of sat on the same road. And then that night, it was like Sunday night, it was like at Walmart in Asheville. And so I just kept pinging it. Like I'd wake up at two in the morning, I'd ping it, you know, like it'd make that alarm sound. And Monday morning, this guy calls me. He's like, hey, I have your iPad. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I locked it down. And I wrote this message on it. So as soon as you turn it on, it won't unlock. It'll just say, uh, this iPad is stolen. Please call this number. And... So I drove back to Asheville, me and my husband did Monday night and got my iPad back from the homeless man. (laughs) So the homeless man called you? (laughs) (laughs) He had some... Roger. Oh, Roger. Oh, my God. Shout out to Roger. (laughs) He said he bought it off of somebody. And I was like, are you sure? Or did you take it? And you know that I'm tracking it. Because, like, I drove straight to his... I drove straight to his apartment complex, or, well, the apartment complex he was at. So that was an interesting story of the weekend, or of the week. God, no wonder we could barely get it together this week to record. Osh is being an investigator here, tracking down her stolen iPad. 
Maggie's on baby duty. Uh, me, I, I don't know. I guess I don't have an excuse. <laughs> it's it's like nine thirty on a Friday night. This is our life. Like when you when you hit your thirties, you're just like, mm, it's time for bed. <laughs> and just so you guys don't question my level of commitment here, I am currently missing the last thirty minutes of SmackDown. So it's muted, so I'm keeping track. But uh, uh, don't worry, you have my full attention. <laughs> All right, for those listening, we are currently on a virtual platform here. Maggie is on the floor of her laundry room, feeding her baby and trying to get her life organized so we can actually get into this episode. Um, how are you doing over there, Maggie? Trying to get to a position where I can actually read my computer. So my story is not that long. I really, today's the first story since the Eliza Fletcher story came out. So I really wanted to talk about that. And I was like tying my story to that too. Uh, Who was Eliza again? The Memphis runner. Yeah, the jogger. Oh, who was the girl that was went missing from that party in California? There was another one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 yes. But they, they found her body, right? Yeah, she was found. Kylie Roden. Rod, Rod, I don't know how to say that. R-O-D-N-I. Rod, Rodney? All I remember about those cases was that the media coverage was heavy. Heavy. And their cases were solved in like a matter of days once the news got a hold of it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm happy that they were found. But when I see things like that, it just makes me wonder why, you know, Indigenous people don't get that kind of energy. So my story today was or is about a girl named Kimberly Michelle Bearclaw Iron. Have you guys heard that name? No, that's a cool name, though. Yeah, she actually has four names, so it's not like hyphenated. Um, So I think she just has two last names. I don't know their, their origination. Now, I'm familiar with her name only because I've come across it in doing research for other cases, but I'm not familiar or entirely familiar with her story. So Kimberly Bearclaw Irons' father last heard from her on October 6, 2020, but he hasn't physically seen his daughter since September of 2020. So Kimberly is a member of the Crow Indian tribe, and at the time of her disappearance, she was 21 years old. She has three children, and her family resides on the Crow Indian Reservation. We have covered other stories from the Crow Reservation, and just as a reminder, the Crow Reservation is located in part of Bighorn County, Montana. Oh, gosh. And we know that that county is damning um, pretty much for MMIW cases. It has such a damning history. Yeah, we've covered several stories from that from there. You know, in covering those cases, we had a lot of discussion about the probability of sex trafficking and human trafficking um, in that area because it's along a major interstate, I believe. Um, and we talked about that too, Maggie, when you went on your trip. Whenever I came back from my trip from Yellowstone, because I drove through the Crow Reservation and, you know, when I was trying to explain to you guys kind of how it was, it's really clear to me. And I think in a lot of the articles you read that sex trafficking is probably the source of a lot of the things that happen to the indigenous women there. But, you know, that's just a, that's just speculation. And I think what makes it worse, it being such a desolate area, is that there's this impression and 
so far, it seems pretty true that people don't care when we go missing. Kimberly's story is really interesting, um, and I'll get into a little bit more. I was just going to say that the Crow Tribe has around 11,000 enrolled members, and around 20,000 of their members speak Crow as their first language. So that was something that I thought was really cool, um, because, you know, native languages are dying. The Crow Nation is a tribe that unfortunately is not as fortunate as ours. In a report in 2015, it was noted that the Crow Reservation poverty rate was at 31.5%, which means of the 11,000 members, around 3,500 would be below the U.S. national poverty income. And just for reference, the poverty income guidelines for a four-person family in the United States is $26,500 a year. That's it? $26,000. Dollars a year is what, like twelve dollars an hour, if that. Oh my goodness! Oh my gosh, Maggie, do you remember when we first started working together? This was probably like seven years ago. Um, we were both making like twelve or thirteen dollars an hour, and Osh, we would keep this little uh, clear Christmas jar shaped like a Christmas tree, and we'd put all of our spare change into it. Every time we had spare change, we'd put it in there, and we called it our Ruth Chris fund because we were determined that we would make enough money to treat ourselves to a steak at Ruth's Chris. Uh, We went to Ruth's Chris once. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when we started, we were, I, when I first started in, you know, at the organization I'm at now, I started, gosh, when I was 20 years old, I made $10 and 50 cents an hour. And now when I think about like how I managed that and was like a single mom, like, I don't even know how we ate, honestly. Like when you think about the world today, like if I was making that now, there's no way I'd be, you know, I would be able to survive. Yeah. And we still talk about how, how we were able to afford gas or groceries or anything else like that. I mean, it's honestly not a living wage. Our tribe just passed. I don't know what it was, but they raised our minimum wage to $15 an hour. So we did that too at our organization. And honestly, I think it's way overdue. Even $15 an hour is low. I mean, 31,000 a year. Yeah. So can you imagine living on less than $15 an hour pay and having a four person family and, you know, you're still barely what's considered poverty. So you would, you know, just barely qualify for services. What's really sad is I feel like not only are Indian reservations and native tribes at a disadvantage, but I feel like the poor are always at a disadvantage especially in the United States, because the system's not set up to help them. But just for, you know, just for reference and for us to kind of keep that in the back of our minds, the Crow Reservation is not um, a rich reservation. So Kimberly was a mother of three kids. And for reasons unknown, right before she left the state of Montana, she left her three children with her grandmother, Marilyn Chief. There wasn't much reported about Kimberly's family, aside from the tragic fact that she had three close family members die of homicide. Oh, wow. Kimberly's great uncle, uncle, and a cousin all died at the hands of someone else. These deaths are tragic alone, but it makes it so much harder to process Kimberly's disappearance. And we know that with poverty comes, you know, substance abuse and violence. Um, So I imagine that not only are a lot of families, you know, kind of ridden with poverty on these reservations, but there's probably also a lot of crime. Which, you know, clearly, if there's three people from one family that died of homicide, you know, that has to be the case. Didn't you mention when you were in Montana that it was the clerk at that hotel you visited that had said that mostly everybody in that area 
knows somebody that has either been murdered or has gone missing. Isn't that right? He was talking about how his wife had two people that were currently missing in her family and how someone in his family had just been found dead like in the past few years. Oh, my gosh. That's so tragic. I couldn't imagine like the turmoil that is in your life when you you're having to go through those experiences with your family. I'd be afraid to go outside. It's scary. Yeah. And, you know, we always talk about this in our presentation about how intergenerational trauma still exists. And we always talk about it like in regards to the Trail of Tears and, you know, our ancestors being forcibly removed. But even this trauma that this family has endured where all of these members have died tragically, like that is will be intergenerational drama to their children, too. You know, like that's stuff that doesn't just go away with those people. That lives on in that family forever. You know, it, it reminds me of this quote that I found when I was working on one of the cases for the Lost Coast series. And it said that they are teaching the children or the little girls, like, it's not a matter of if they get assaulted. It's a matter of when. And they say that not to just purposely scare them, but to prepare them. And, you know, when we think into intergenerational trauma, like Maggie said, we think of stuff decades and decades ago, but this is stuff little girls are learning today. And this is stuff they're going to carry with them. And these are lessons that they're going to teach their kids. And this fear and this understanding that harm is going to come to them no matter what uh, is going to carry with them. Yeah, it's going to escalate. Kimberly's father, Curtis Iron, recalls receiving a number of strange calls from his daughter in the week before her disappearance, and each call seemed to come from a different number and location. The first of these strange calls came from his daughter, and she stated that she was in Las Vegas, Nevada on September 22nd. She called to tell her dad that her boyfriend had been arrested and that she wanted to come home, but that she didn't have any money. The call ended before Curtis could get any more information from Kimberly. A few days later, Kimberly called again, but this time she was in Oxford, California on her way to Long Beach. Curtis recalled that in both phone calls he received from Kimberly, she was in tears over the phone. He said that she was crying and very upset and that she was just trying to get home. But the calls always ended before he could figure out exactly where she was. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. I know. I can't imagine my, even though, I mean, 20, she was only 21 years old. I mean, that's not that far out of being an adult, you know, like if my young adult daughter called me frantically like that, like I would be a mess. Well, especially if you can't afford to drive or fly out there, um, that's got to be especially distressful. Especially if like you can't get, she's upset and you know, you can't get any answers out of her, you know? So this story was actually covered by NBC Dateline and The Medium. And in the article written by NBC, Curtis, her father, stated that the calls from his daughter were very strange, not only due to the fact that she was very upset over the phone, but also because she was traveling to so many different states. He reported that it was very unusual for Kimberly to even leave the state of Montana, much less drive all the way to California. In the calls that Curtis received, Kimberly never actually gave her father the exact location, and he would go days without hearing from her again. And he didn't know who, he he just knew she was with her boyfriend, right? Her dad said her boyfriend was arrested. Yes, that's what Kimberly said in one of the phone calls. Oddly enough, when she would call, it would be from a different number every single time, and Curtis reported that it sounded like she was always on speakerphone with people around her. He would ask her if she was okay, to which she always responded that she was, 
but Curtis didn't believe her. He reported to say something didn't add up. She was always on speakerphone. So the people she was with, whoever they were, could hear everything she was saying. She would tell me that she was okay, but she didn't sound okay to me. She didn't sound like herself at all. Yeah, that sounds really suspicious, especially if she's traveling from state to state, calling from a different phone number. She's on speakerphone. She's short with her conversations. Something's definitely up. Yeah, and you know, the people that know her best are going to be the ones that are going to be able to know over the phone, like her dad, you know? Like, your mom and dad know when something's wrong. Right, yeah. Oh, of course. So the last call he got from Kimberly was the one um, in August. On October 6th, where she said that she was traveling from Oxford, California to Long Beach. So in this call, after she hung up, he tried to call back just like he had done every other time. But every time he tried to call the number back, the number wouldn't answer. And then if he waited a few days or hours to call that number again, it would be disconnected. So the final call that Curtis received from Kimberly was ultimately traced back to the Los Angeles area. But that's all the information that he has. Curtis didn't know why Kimberly would even be in the Los Angeles area. She had no connection to anyone there. So are you saying that's it? She's just out there somewhere? Uh, She is still missing, yeah. Kimberly's grandmother, Marilyn, has even gotten younger family members to reach out to Kimberly on social media because her social media is actually still active. What? So somebody's posting on her account? Well, kind of. Um... They reported that occasionally they would receive responses back from this from Kimberly's account, but everyone who knew Kimberly personally reported that the responses did not sound like her. This has just got to be so difficult for her family and especially her dad if somebody's posting things like this and he's just doing all he can to find her. Kimberly's dad did, did an interview with Dateline and he said, it's just not like her to take off like this. She wouldn't leave her kids. Something isn't right. If she's safe, then all she has to do is tell the police, but that's not happening. So to me, something is wrong. Oh, for sure. Because, you know, she even called him and was crying, saying she wants to come home. Your child is calling, saying they want to come home and they don't have a way to get home or the ability to tell you where they are. No, and even on the social media, it was reported that there were two accounts, one that would only repost stuff, like no actual posts, and it would just be like random stuff. And the other had been, you know, completely inactive and posting. So it was, it's the social media part of it kind of makes her case really confusing because it's hard to determine if she's just out there and doesn't want to contact family. But that's hard to believe when she reached out to her dad on multiple occasions asking for help. So Kimberly's dad, Curtis, believes that his daughter is being held against her will and fears that she may be a victim of sex, a sex trafficking ring. Um, And there's no, there's no facts about that. But, you know, he just believes that based off the area that they're from and kind of statistics in the area that it's definitely possible that and she's been traveling so often And the fact that every time he called or spoke to her, that there was always people in the background. So, you know, I think his theory is unfortunately plausible because, I mean, that's what happens. Yeah. And based on the trends, like you're saying, I mean, that's a fear that that's actually what is happening to her. 
And, you know, sex, people think sex trafficking always looks like people being, like, corralled in the back of an 18-wheeler, you know, being traveled to Mexico and forced. But sex trafficking can also be taking advantage of someone who comes from an unfortunate circumstance and promising them a better life um, and, you know, dragging them across the country and then potentially getting them into drugs and that sort of thing and then forcing them to sell themselves. That's sex trafficking, too. You know, it's not just the crazy scenarios we we think of, I think, is just like there are all kinds of different sex trafficking rings and scenarios. And, you know, I don't know what kind of background that Kimberly had. You know, I don't know what kind of people she hung out with or ran with or anything like that. Um, but a missing persons report was filed with the Bighorn County Sheriff's Office in Hardin, Montana. And they are treating her disappearance as a missing persons case. And they are investigating it. They do know that, you know, their social media responses have been there. But they have reported that they will keep her case open until she contacts her family and states that she's okay. So it sounds like even they have some suspicions about the social media. So they haven't heard from her since October of 2020? October 6, 2020, and she is still missing and has not directly contacted her family. So this is almost two years. What do we know about the boyfriend who was arrested? Anything? Nothing. I don't even know his name. We don't know what he was arrested for or nothing? No. And Marilyn, her grandmother, also has custody of her children now. And she said in an article that every time she pulls up to, you know, the house, that the kids will come running to her truck and say, is my mom with you? And every time she, every time she has to say no. But, you know, like, they, they don't even know where their mom is. Oh, and those poor babies are just so hopeful. Yeah. So yeah. sad. That's just heartbreaking because evil people in this world do evil things like this and take people. You know, they don't take, I mean, they take possessions like an iPad. But why would you take a person away from their family? Because, you know, what's sad, Osh, is these people that do these things, these terrible things to other people, don't even view this person as someone who matters. You know, like you're saying, they're treating them like an an object, someone's property that they can just sell. Kimberly might have had a rocky history and, you know, her calls weren't taken seriously. You know, had they maybe got on this like as soon as she started making those calls? Like, what if she is kidnapped? You know, I mean, maybe they could have found her sooner. You know, there's a lot of maybes in these cases, a lot of maybes, and maybe they should have did this, or maybe they should have did this, or maybe they could have done this. You know, that's our problem. We think we think everyone should be good people like we are. And you know what? People just aren't. And I hate that. I hate that for my kids when I think about stuff like that. You know, we have little boys. You're gonna, like, I feel like I have to teach my kid how to like protect himself as a, as a teenager, like in all kinds of scenarios, you know? It's like you got to constantly stay on the ready and be prepared for anything that's going to just pop up. You know, you just got to stay on guard constantly. I know. And I hate that. I feel like we have to be so cautious of everyone and everything. Like, I would love to believe that everyone had good intentions. Because I think, you know, deep down, like, when you think about little kids and kind of how 
they grow up like at before a certain age, everyone has good intentions. They don't mean any harm, but I just hate that. You know, that's kind of how we have to teach our kids too. is like, be cautious, be weary, like don't trust anyone. Right. Even just thinking about like when we were growing up, things are so much different. Absolutely. With technology and the internet, people are more able to pretend and to hide. And I think that makes the situation a lot more dangerous too. Um, Because, you know, back before then, like you were who you were and you couldn't hide it. I mean, what are you going to do? Call someone on the phone? Like now, like you can be anywhere and do anything on the computer. And that's scary. I mean, or you could be like Osh and use technology for good and use it to track down your iPad that went on a wild adventure in Asheville last weekend, you know? <laughs> and it's shout out to Roger. We we need more Rogers in the world. Roger said F- it and gave up. She ain't stopped pinging this dang iPad. Like, I, can't, no rest. I can't even watch my Netflix on this thing. <laughs> It's not worth it. Come get your damn iPad. (laughs) (laughs) This Alicia girl won't stop. (laughs) On a serious note, technology today is just scary. There's so much out there and there's so much to be mindful of and to watch out for. It really is. I'm scared for my kids. Kimberly Michelle Bearclaw Iron had last contact in Oxford, California, and is from the Crow Agency in Montana. She has not been physically seen since September 22nd, 2020. At the time of her disappearance, she was 21 years old, has light brown hair, brown eyes, is around 5'2 and 126 pounds. She has a notable scar between her eyebrows. Please call the Bighorn County Sheriff at 406 406- Six six five nine seven eight zero and reference case number two zero dash zero one two eight eight or dial nine one one and give them the case number if you see or hear anything about Kimberly Bearclaw Iron. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com.